Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. This is your host, and as you just heard, it is on. It is that time of year. There's two of them uh, where we are doing Pledge Week, but it's also that time of year when we try and talk about interesting things to remind you of why it's so important to um, support your community radio. Um, But before we get started, I do want to remind you as always that you can find me on the line during the week at facebook.com slash evidence-based radio. And um, I try and make sure to uh, put things up there during the week that I'm not going to get to or that are especially things that are more visual uh, videos and pictures, Um, sometimes literally just pictures of cute animals because we all know that we can use some more pictures of cute animals in all of our lives these days. Um, And so, yeah. Okay. So in the spirit of Pledge Week, we're going to talk about dinosaurs, because everybody loves dinosaurs, even creationists who think that men and dinosaurs lived together in the past, which they didn't in any way, shape or form. uh, They still love dinosaurs. (laughs) They just don't understand them properly. Um, And even though the animals that we now refer to as non-avian dinosaurs died long, long ago. Uh, We're still learning new things about them pretty much every day. Just in my lifetime, for instance, they've gone from endothermic or cold-blooded, scaly, lizard-like creatures that died out millions of years ago to potentially exothermic or hot-blooded lizard-like creatures Uh, that sported proto-feathers and evolved into today's birds. Um, So I don't have it anymore, but I used to have a great shirt that said Evolution Kills, (laughs) and it started with a little dinosaur, and then it had a chicken, and then it had a chicken dinner. (laughs) Um, And so nowadays we know that birds are one, they are, they evolved from one lineage of the dinosaurs. So Lots of different dinosaurs, uh, theropod dinosaurs actually became birds. So the tiny, it, they think that probably like some of the really small theropods managed to survive the great disaster that befell everybody else. And so they were able to squeak by and actually continue to evolve. And now we have really amazing birds that are also dinosaurs. Um, And we'll talk a little bit about a couple of dinosaurs that are compared to birds, and they're mostly compared to big birds, because if you've ever seen a ostrich or a, the one that I always think of is a cassowary, if you've ever seen a cassowary, it is no leap. There, there is no required leap from that to, um, from that to thinking that it's a dinosaur because it looks like a dinosaur uh, just with feathers. And now we know dinosaurs had feathers. So it is very cool. All right. And we've actually learned a lot of things about dinosaurs. So one of the things I always think about is the example of oviraptors. 
So oviraptors were named this because they were often found associated with nests of eggs. And so in the old days, paleontologists assumed that they were caught out when raiding nests. But it turned out that they weren't trying to eat the nests. Rather, they were tending their nests and probably brooding, much like modern birds do today. And so we have learned all sorts of things. And one of the huge things that's come out recently that you may or may not have heard of uh, is the fact that Matthew Barron, a PhD student at the University of Cambridge, has proposed rewriting the very base of the dinosaur family trees division. So since 1887, dinosaurs have been divided into two groups, basically, the lizard-hipped Sericians and the bird-hipped Ornithicians. And of course, just to make things more complicated, the group of theropod dinosaurs from which birds descended have traditionally been placed among the lizard-hipped Sericians. And so the Sericians have traditionally included both meat-eating theropods and long-necked sauropodomorphs. Um, and the Ornithischians have traditionally been defined as horned, duck-billed, and armored species. Um, however, that might all be changing. So Barron and colleagues carefully examined 74 early dinosaurs and related early animals and have concluded that theropods, the meat-eating dinos that led to birds, should actually be closer to the uh, other members of the Ornithischian clade. And so that would make them more closely related to their armored and spiked potential meals. <laughs> um, and so let's go back a couple hundred years uh, and talk about how this all got started um, and how we originally divided them into these two groups. So... We know that, of course, some ancient peoples certainly had contact with fossils. They certainly were able to, um, you know, come across them. We're certainly not the first people who have ever come across fossils. Um, and in fact, there's a great book that someone wrote, and I'm not going to remember what it what it's called, unfortunately. I forgot to look it up. I'm sorry. Um about theories that suggest that many mythic beasts, especially in things like Greek and Roman and sort of Mediterranean, um, the, the Mediterranean area, that they might in part be based on people's ideas of what fossil remains might have looked like when they had flesh. Um, and so it wasn't until the late 19th century, however, that we really started to have people that we would consider paleontologists. And so paleontologists are people who study fossils. And so in the late 19th century, we started to have people who considered themselves to be people who studied fossils. And so in 1842, the paleontologist Richard Owen first named and described the first specimens in the clade Dinosauria. Now, he basically said, everybody's lumped into one thing called dinosaurs. All these guys here, they're all dinosaurs. There's not any real difference between them. But in 1888, Harry Govier Seely 
realized that while they shared many characteristics, there were large differences between some dinosaurs, especially when it came to hip shape. And so it was Seeley who first proposed to divide the dinosaurs into two separate lineages, the Cerichia and the Ornithischia. Now, this led to the belief that the two lineages developed separately. And so at that point, basically they said, oh, well, there are these things that look basically the same, but one of them developed from one set of animals and the others developed from another completely different set of animals. And so they became two distinct groups. But in the 80s, they realized that the various families of dinosaurs really should be brought back together in a larger sense and then divided into these other categories uh, sort of lower down in the um, taxonomical ladder. And so that was decided, um, or one of the people who really um, suggested it was Jacques Gauthier. Um, and so he basically looked at dinosaurs and said, you know, they all have these shared traits that clearly derived from a common ancestor. And that's how we decide what a clade is, basically, or what any kind of um, division along taxonomical, um, along the taxonomical sort of list is that you sort of go down and as you go up, things get more broad. Um, and as you go down, they get more specific. And so when you go up, you should have all of the dinosaurs in one place because they're all, as far as we can tell, derived from one set of common ancestry. And of course, I know this sounds kind of dry. Um, this certainly isn't the most exciting part of talking about dinosaurs, but you'd be amazed at how uh, intricate and uh, fraught and uh, contested the taxonomy of um, dinosaurs actually are and have been and will be. Um, and so it's really interesting if you want to see sort of really, really deep <laughs> sort of nerd fights about things. Uh, dinosaur taxonomy is really one of those places where like you could fall down a rabbit hole and not come up for air for a very long time. And, you know, it's actually important because, you know, it's really important to be able to figure out these taxonomical um, units because it's kind of the basis of how we look at a creature. So, you know, if you're looking at a dog and a cat, you want to know that dogs are in this part of the tree because if you're looking for a cat in a tree that has wolves above it, you're going to be pretty confused because how does a cat come from a wolf? Um, and so it's that sort of a thing. You need to be able to figure out, are these in the side that ha that come from wolves or are these the side that come from earlier wild cats? And so that's kind of the, the easy way of uh, explaining taxonomy. But taxonomy is a whole thing. Um, like I said, this is 
deep. <laughs> this is deep scientific nerdery right here is arguments about taxonomy. And basically arguments about taxonomy have been going on since the late 1900s um, and probably before. Um, so yeah, if you're really into deep, deep nerdery, that's, that's where it's at is taxonomy. Um, and it's actually, it's a little bit interesting because there's some debate. Some people have felt that, you know, maybe we don't need to go so deep into this nerdery, but there are other people who say, you're crazy. Of course we need to go here. And, um, I'm sort of on the taxonomy is important, uh, team, but you know, we'll see. And so, yeah, before we go on, I do want to remind you <laughs> uh, that this is our Pledge Week, and um, I am talking about dinosaurs tonight, which I hope you will enjoy, um, because I hope that it inspires you to want to hear more, and if you want to hear more, then we need you to reach out and pledge if you can. Um, Every little bit helps, um, as we have in the last few pledge drives, every individual donation of a dollar or more will be matched by a $10 donation from the estate of David S. Dow. Um, and so that's really amazing and important for us. So if you can donate, that would be amazing. You can call 413-585-1033 or you can go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate or just valleyfreeradio.org and click on the big donate button on the top. So yeah, thanks. Okay, so let's talk about one of the big issues with talking about dinosaurs in general, which is that despite what you may think, we really have very few dinosaur remains. We're really working from a pretty small pool of um, specimens. And so many remains you see in museums are actually casts of original bones that are held by other museums. So for instance, um, in the Springfield Museum, I think all of the... Um, articulated skeletons that they have are actually casts of skeletons that are in other museums. And there's nothing wrong with displaying casts because it allows more people to see the bones. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I think it's great that we can share um, these, but I think that it also gives a slightly false impression sometimes as to how much material really is out there. Um, and so sometimes we have only a couple of bones. And so there's a lot of animals out there that we haven't been able to describe at all because we only have, you know, a leg bone or a, um, you know, a skull, but nothing else. And, or even just a part of a skull, really, because a skull you can probably do a fair amount with, um, if it shares traits with other things that you've already found. But, um, you know, and unlike the old idea that, you know, scientists will take a tooth and describe an entire animal, generally that's not how it works. If we only have a tooth, if we have a tooth that's very similar to other teeth, 
that's one thing. But if you just found a tooth and it didn't look like any other tooth that you'd ever seen, you don't do anything with that. You say, here is an unknown tooth. You give it a name that says something like, that describes it so, you know, desert tooth or something like that in Latin, of course, and you put it away. And so that's part of the issue. But what's really cool is that in recent years, we've actually been able to find more stuff. And so you may have heard, um, this actually started out a couple of years ago, that there was a researcher, Mary Schweitzer, who's a molecular paleontologist at North Carolina State University. She first announced way back in 2005, uh, too much skepticism at the time, and I'll talk about that in a second, that she had found soft tissue preserved inside the leg of a juvenile T-Rex found in Montana. Now, in 2007, she confirmed her findings, showing that the proteins were indeed from the dinosaur and not some form of contamination. And so um, there was a whole lot of controversy when this first came out because basically creationists uh, who believe that the world is only 6,000 years old or 10,000, depending on the sect, basically took this as some sort of gotcha, aha, that we uh, could not, um, that we could not substantiate the idea that dinosaurs were millions of years old. But of course, Mary being a good scientist did the field work or did the work to figure out how this could actually have happened because she also, because she believed like most scientists believed that this was impossible initially. And so what she did was she looked at the evidence and what the evidence showed was that about half of the samples that they looked at contained traces of proteins. And so the problem is, she notes, for 300 years, we thought, well, the organics are all gone. So why should we look for something that's not going to be there? And nobody looks. And so what they found was that the key to the preservation of the tissue was iron. The iron, it turns out, once it's released from the molecular bonds that keep it in check when the animal is alive, starts to act on the cells in the same way as formaldehyde. The iron produces nanoparticles and also free radicals. The free radicals cause proteins and cell membranes to tie in knots, Schweitzer noted. They basically act, again, like I said, like formaldehyde. Now, of course, several other important factors are needed to find this sort of amazing preservation. The specimens were basically completely in the right place at the right time. Uh, they were from animals who were articulated rather than scattered, which suggests that they were buried quickly. So it was a full skeleton still the way it would have been um, when the animal was alive rather than scattered as if it had been in a river that flowed down and things like that. Um, and they were also found in sandstone, which is porous. And so that may have helped wick away bacteria and other um, and things like enzymes that would have caused decay. And so to go a step further, Schweitzer's team actually conducted a test 
to see if, you know, this made sense. So what they did did was they took ostrich blood vessels, again, a modern dinosaur, and they left them in either a water bath or a bath of iron-rich liquid containing red blood cells. And so they found that the blood vessels left in water soon degraded, but those left in the iron-rich liquid were still recognizable after two years of sitting in the lab at room temperature. Now, the really interesting thing about these two stories, finding the soft tissue and possibly redefining the entire dinosaur family tree, is that both depended on looking at dinosaur remains in a new way. And that's an important part of good science. Sometimes it doesn't work out, uh, but sometimes it leads to new breakthroughs, like realizing that under certain extremely unique circumstances, soft tissue preservation at large timescales is actually possible. Now, of course, there's something to be said about relying on known data. We don't want to have to reinvent the wheel every time we want to do science. But sometimes received wisdom, especially when it comes to taxonomy, for instance, is worthy of being revisited and revised. Okay, so before we go on, I do want to talk a little bit more about uh, the station that you are listening to right now. Valley Free Radio is completely volunteer run and continues to be broadcast due to the generous support of its programmers and its audience. The money we receive during our biannual pledge drives goes directly to the station. It pays for the rent and electricity in the station. It pays for new equipment. It pays for the licenses required to play you the offbeat, unique, and rare music of our music programs. And again, in the last few years, we've been really, really lucky to have a wonderful system of matching grants. And so, as I mentioned before, we're once again able to tell you that for every individual who donates at least a dollar to Valley Free Radio during this week, the estate of David S. Dow will pledge $10 to add to the overall total we raise. Um, and so you can donate by going to valleyfreeradio.com slash donate or by calling the studio at 413-585-1033. Now, as you may know, I knew Dave personally, and he was a wonderful man who was really got into supporting the station in the last few years of his life. You can actually hear his brother, Mike Dow, on Civil Politics directly after this show. And again, you can call now to make a pledge. And, you know, you can call, but also I think probably the easiest thing to do is to go to uh, the valleyfreeradio.com. And so if you want to leave a comment with your pledge, you can use the custom amount button on the page. Um, and like I say, Literally every dollar helps. So if you enjoy alternative radio free from commercials and unbeholden to any corporations, it'd be great if you could donate today. And if you've already donated, thank you. I honestly couldn't do this without you. Um, I've met some incredible people working here at VFR, people who I now consider not just fellow programmers, but actual friends. And in the last year, we've added a ton of new shows. It'd be really a shame to lose momentum, the momentum that we've built up in the last few years. So 
if you can help, that'd be great. If you can't, I understand. Um, but this is really important to us because this is the way that we keep the lights on um, and keep the signal going out. Okay, so let's get back to dinosaurs. Um, I want to briefly remind you before we do some PSAs that if you want to encounter dinosaurs locally, that can be done. Not only can you visit the Trustees of Reservation Park in Holyoke, where you can view dinosaur tracks still on the banks of the Connecticut River, but you can also visit the huge collection of dinosaur footprints located in the basement of the Beninsky Natural History Museum at Amherst College. And of course, not only are there dinosaur tracks there, but there are dinosaur fossils and other displays. It's a great museum. I love it. Um, I go there a fair amount. And so you can also, while you're there, when you walk in, you'll be able to see a skeleton of the mastodon, which is, of course, partially inspirational for the new uh, mascot of Amherst College. Um, and, um, or sorry, the mammoth, not the mastodon. There is actually a mastodon there as well, but the one, it is the mammoths. Um, and so there's both there in the museum. And um, if you go there, I definitely recommend um, that you not miss the gem collection that is located in the hallway parallel to the museum. Now, I am a rock hound. Um, I have been driving people crazy by collecting rocks since I was a child. So I especially love mineral uh, collections in natural history museums. And um, there is also, of course, places like the Springfield Science Museum that does have a dinosaur hall. And um, apparently there is a dinosaur state park in Rocky Hill, Connecticut. Um, I haven't actually been there yet. Uh, this was a new find when I was doing research for tonight's show. I hadn't known that before. So I'm definitely probably going to go at some point, but I can't give you a recommendation for it because I haven't yet been. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, there is a lot to be said for local dinosaurs, but let us take one more, uh, or let us take a little break and do some PSAs. And then we will talk about if you're really, really passionate about dinosaur footprints, where you need to go. So hang on for just a second. With death and then we... Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Hi, my name's Leo, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to. My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns! Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. Hello. My name is Ed Malachowski, and the name of my show is Nine Volt Heart. 
I'm excited to be able to share with you my favorite musicians, as well as new discoveries every Saturday from 3 to 5 p.m. on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP-FM in Northampton, Florence. The show is primarily current music in the Americana genre, with heavy doses of newgrass and alternative folk and country. I appreciate the opportunity to share this music in artists that I love. Valley Free Radio gives me a platform to highlight our Valley's musical treasures. My show often takes a hyper-local format, focusing on musicians that live and play here, as well as musicians who come to our venues to play. If you appreciate that local content, please call and help us in our fun drive that we have put together here. And if you would, please donate to Valley Free Radio today by visiting us online at valleyfreeradio.org. Or you can call us today at 413-585-1033 and make a pledge that will help keep Valley Free Radio and this local approach to music on the air. This is Ruthie from Pedal People with a public service announcement. If you frequent downtown Northampton or Florence and you pass by the recycling and trash bins on the street, the public ones, I'm here to let you know that cups are not recyclable. No plastic cups, no paper cups, no styrofoam cups, no clear cups, red cups, blue cups, yellow cups, no insulated cups. Because if you put cups in the recycling bin, it means either I pick them out or someone at the sorting facility picks them out in Springfield, or it contaminates the whole load too much that the whole load is considered trash. Or if you can just bring your own cup all together and not have disposable cups, that'd be even better. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your cooperation. Spring and summer are prime time for ticks that can spread Lyme disease and other infections. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would like to remind you to wear bug repellent when outdoors, shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check your whole body for ticks every day. If you've been bitten by a tick and develop fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. The views and opinions expressed on WXOJLP are solely those of the original hosts and guests of their respective programs. These views and opinions do not necessarily represent those of Valley Free Radio Incorporated, its volunteers, or any other hosts, guests, or programs broadcasted on this station. If you would like to know more about Valley Free Radio, please visit us at valleyfreeradio.org. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Okay, we are back, and I am about to tell you where you need to go if you really, really, really want to uh, find some dinosaur footprints. Actually, you really can't so much, because um, only one of these places is really open to the public. Um, but basically, you need to go to Australia. Uh Paleontologists from the University of Queensland and James Cook University have documented the most diverse collection of dinosaur tracks in the world. Now, again, <laughs> they're pretty far away. They are on the northwestern coast of Western Australia. The collection consists of three main sites, and they have Aboriginal Australian names. Uh, so forgive me for this, but I'm going to give it a shot. The three sites are from north to south, Yanajari, Walmadani, 
and Kar Dilakan Jajal Buru. The diversity of the tracks around Walmadani was globally unparalleled and made the area the Cretaceous equivalent of the Serengeti, noted team leader Dr. Steve Salisbury, a paleontologist at the University of Queensland. Now, um, this is a really cool find because it is... Um, Sorry, he goes on to say it is extremely significant, forming the primary record of non-avian dinosaurs in the western half of the continent and providing the only glimpse of Australia's dinosaur fauna during the first half of the early Cretaceous period. Now, they found thousands of tracks from at least 48 dinosaurs um, that date from between 140 and 127 million years ago during the Cretaceous period. They cover a range of sizes from 8 inches to 5.6 feet. (laughs) The area contains the only evidence of the beloved Stegosaurus uh, in Australia. And so there are tracks from all four of the large groups of dinosaurs there. uh, Theropods, or three-toed bipedal carnivores. Sauropods, or long-necked quadrupedal herbivores. Ornithopods or bipedal herbivores, and thyrophorans, quadrupedal herbivores that spotted that sported spikes and armor. Uh, and as mentioned before, this is an area of land where the uh, Australian Aborigines are, have a pretty strong presence. And we can specifically tell, like I mentioned before, that there are some native and ancient peoples that we know have had dealings with dinosaur um, tracks and with fossils, we specifically know that they have been aware of the tracks for thousands of years uh, because we are told that the tracks are integral to a song cycle that extends along the coast from Bunginugan to Wabana then inland to the southeast over a total distance of approximately 280 miles, tracing the journey of a dreamtime creator being known as Marala, or Emu Man, which is really cool if you think about it. Um, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's sort of a coincidence um, because, you know, birds... We now know that birds are dinosaurs, but birds have always kind of been like dinosaurs. So it's not a giant, you know, aha, therefore people knew X, Y, or Z kind of thing. We're not in ancient aliens territory here. But it is really cool um, that they, you know, called it Emu Man because, of course, an emu is a dinosaur. And these are dinosaur footprints and it's amazing. (laughs) Sorry. Um, And, of course, one of the cool things is that Uh, It reminds me, it actually comes back to local because it reminds me of Edward Hitchcock, who to his dying day believed that the dinosaur footprints he had found were actually the remains of ancient birds. Um, And, you know, it was a totally valid thought that they were birds because they looked like bird feet. Because, of course, as we have said several times, birds. Birds are a direct descendant of the line of theropod dinosaurs. Um, And so, yeah. um, And of course, 
as I've mentioned before, perhaps, I think I did mention before, the, the cassowary, um, which is basically you look at it and you're like, oh, yeah, that's a dinosaur. That is absolutely a dinosaur. And um, so, you know, you have these large flightless birds that very easily evoke the dinosaur lineage. And um, we will talk about a new dinosaur that has been discovered that is compared to a cassowary. Um, but again, before we do that, um, I'm sorry, I do feel uh, like I'm imposing, but it really is important for us to make a pitch for Valley Free Radio because that's that's how it is. That's how we are able to do our shows. It's how we're able to be here on a Friday night. How I'm able to be here on a Friday night talking to you about my love of a taxonomy and dinosaurs. Um, and I have loved dinosaurs for a really long time. Um, when I was in um, probably fifth grade, I was in a sort of special, you know, smart kids program, whatever. And I was able to make a book and I made a book about dinosaurs. Um, and so my book was devoted to dinosaurs. And I still remember my favorite. It's still, I think, um, because he sort of is the, I feel like it's one of those sort of underdog dinosaurs. Um, I always called it Ankylosaurus when I was young, but I think it's now um, the more pronounced, more uh, proper pronunciation is Ankylosaurus. Um, and then that's the sort of, he's one of the little sort of tank ones. He looks like a cross between a turtle and a tank. And um, they have the sort of club uh, tail and they're very cute. Um, and so that's my favorite dinosaur. Um, and so having Valley Free Radio be here allows me to tell you about that. Um, and so, you know, one of the really big things about us is that we don't run commercials. We don't take money for commercials. Uh, we don't have any like connections to government funds that are coming in or anything like that. Um, though I am very happy to find, I was very happy to read a couple of weeks ago that Congress came to its senses and uh, told the Republican president that they were not going to cut funding to public radio um, because that was uh, constituent suicide. Um, and so, yeah, it's really important for us to have people donate. Um, so as always, you can donate by going to valleyfreeradio.com and clicking on the donate button or by calling 413-585-1033. Uh, and again, I cannot express how important and appreciated your donations are. And yeah, so let us now move on and talk about a new species of large oviraptor. So we talked about oviraptor at the top. Um, and that is the dinosaur that they used to think was an egg eater. And then eventually they figured out, oh, wait, no, it's sitting on those eggs. Those are its own eggs. It's not eating them. And so this is a really kind of weird and convoluted story. Um, so I definitely wanted to share it with you. A partial clutch of eggs associated with a uh, embryo dinosaur skeleton has been identified by an international team of paleontologists from Canada, China, the United States, and the Slovak Republic as a new large-bodied canathinid oviraptosaur, uh, which they've named Bibelong sinensis. And that means baby dragon from China, which is adorable, except 
I guess in terms of dragon sizes, it's a baby, but it's a pretty big dinosaur, it turns out. And so the eggs and embryo were first collected in China's Henan province in 1993 and were shipped to the United States for preparation. And so during this time, they were actually, weirdly enough, it was actually uh, featured in a cover story in an article in a 1996 National Geographic magazine about the process of extracting the embryo skeleton from the egg. Now, during this time, it earned the nickname Baby Louie after the photographer Louie Saihoyas, who was the... Uh, National Geographic photographer who took the um, pictures that were featured in the article. And so the embryo was originally exported by Florence and Charlie Mesgovern, um, who are fossil and mineral dealers, who eventually sold the specimen to the Indianapolis Children's Museum in 2001. And so for 12 years, the specimen remained on display in the museum while China negotiated with the museum for its repatriation, which finally came about in December of 2013. Now, in recent years, many countries have taken a much stronger stance on exporting what they consider to be cultural and natural patrimony. China has been trying to recover many of the eggs and other fossils that were extracted from the country in the late 80s and early 90s, when basically farmers were going into their fields and digging them up and selling them on the open market um, or the black market. Um, and so we could spend a lot of time talking about the ethics of exporting fossils and other natural resources along with cultural artifacts um, of various countries, but let's table that for another time as it's quite a complicated discussion. Um, one thing I will note, though, um, that I don't think that people think about enough is that once a fossil has been excavated by someone other than a paleontologist and sold for a private or even a public collection, while it still may be amazing and fascinating, it actually becomes a sort of, uh, I wrote inert object, and I think that kind of embodies some of what I'm trying to say. Um, fossils, as well as archaeological and anthropological specimens, if we were talking about that, they're most valuable when they are excavated by qualified scientists who can carefully document the layers of sediment the specimen is found in, what other, if any, fossils are located near the specimen, and a host of other important pieces of information that are lost if you just dig up a fossil and sell it at a rock and gem show. Now, I'm not saying it's not okay to ever buy fossils. I actually have a few plant fossils I got years ago at A to Z, but it's still important, but it's still an important thing to think about. And, you know, I personally don't think that I would buy more. Um, I'll stick to cool looking minerals and rocks. But in this case, the researchers actually managed to get really lucky. They were able to locate one of those local farmers who had helped excavate the eggs back in the 1990s. And in February 2015, they were able to travel to the site and actually identified egg fragments that matched those of the original specimen. Not precisely, but they were clearly of the same kind of egg. And so the eggs themselves are referred to as macro alonga to lithis zizianensis, which translates to large elongated 
elongate stone eggs. And of course, that is with good reason. Uh, these doozies are up to 18 inches long and can weigh as much as 11 pounds. They're some of the largest ever discovered. Now, of course, the 11 pound weight is the stone. Um, it's not, you know, they wouldn't necessarily have weighed 11 pounds when they were, you know, actually eggs. Um, but still, they're pretty darn big. And so the original intact clutch of eggs would have been a circle of between 6.5 and 10 feet in diameter and have contained around or even more than two, than two dozen eggs. Now, Darla Zielinitsky of the University of Calgary and colleagues Philip Curry and Kenneth Carpenter from the Canadian and United States teams began work on the specimen shortly after it arrived in the U.S., Although the identity of the dinosaur embryo could not be determined due to its state of preservation, I had recognized that the large eggs in the nest belonged to an oviraptosaur, based on various characteristics of the eggshell, Pro Professor Zielinski said. This meant that baby Louie's parents must have been truly gigantic, far larger than any known oviraptosaur species at the time. Dinosaur embryos, because they are so small and are only present for a short time, time interval in the egg are very rarely preserved as fossils. So discovering a fossilized dinosaur embryo is equivalent to winning the lottery, she noted. Baby Louie is the only embryo of a giant oviraptosaur known in the world. And in fact, he had he grown up, researchers suggest he may have weighed in at around three tons with a parrot-like skull and feathers. A, again, a truly gigantic and scary prehistoric version of the cassowary, which is already terrifying. If you've ever watched a cassowary swallow a apple whole, um, yeah, it's a little bit, <laughs> it's disconcerting. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so there's a bunch of new species that we are finding all the time. So for instance, there's a new species of tyrannosaurid. And so this would have been a cousin of the uh, more famous Tyrannosaurus rex. Now, this one is named Despletosaurus honori, and that is in honor of Jack Horner, um, who is a famed paleontologist and who is very well known as having been the consultant on uh, the Jurassic Park movies. And, you know, in part, the character of Ellen Grant was sort of uh, based on him, again, in part. Um, and so D. Honori would have stood around seven feet tall and had an overall body length of around 30 feet. Now, what's cool about this is that they've actually been able to determine a bunch of things about Tyrannosaurids from looking at the remains of these animals. So what they realized is that Tyrannosaurus's had scaly, lipless faces and a highly touch-sensitive snout. It turns out that, that Tyrannosaurus are identical to crocodilians in that the bones of their snouts and jaws are rough, except for a narrow band of smooth bone along the tooth row. In crocodilians, the rough texture occurs deep, 
occurs deep to large flat scales. Given the identical texture, Tyrannosauruses had the same covering. We did not find any evidence for lips in Tyrannosaurus. The rough texture covered by scales extended nearly to the tooth row, providing no space for lips. However, we did find evidence for other type of skin on the face, including areas of extremely coarse bone that supported armor-like skin on the snout and on the sides of the lower jaw. The armor-like skin would have protected Tyrannosaurus from abrasions, perhaps sustained when hunting and feeding. Now, they also found evidence for rows of tiny openings, and that would have allowed for hundreds of branches of nerves to produce a sensitivity in the face similar to that of a human fingertip. And so this would have given them the ability to really do amazing things with their face, to sense uh, minute changes in their environment. And um, that's really cool because it's a great example of um, not only an early evolution of that kind of sixth sense that many animals develop. Um, some of the other examples are electroreception that... Um, is in platypus bills, so they use it to um, find their prey in mud. Um, and of course, bird migration, they have magnetic fields, they have a bit of um, magnet magnetite in their brains that helps them sense magnetic fields. And it's also a example of convergent evolution. So it developed not only in the Tyrannosaurids, but it also developed in the crocodilians because they are not directly related. Um, and so that is really, really cool. And so there are a bunch of other new species that have been recently discovered. Um, and so there is a new, um, sauropod that was discovered. Um, well, it's not actually new, um, it's, they've, they've had it for a while. It was discovered in 1995 by Swiss paleontologists, but it took them a while to figure out just what was going on with this sort of pile of bones. Um, the fossils were described by Dr. Emmanuel Chop of the University of Turin and Dr. Octavio Matias from the Universidad Nova de Lisboa, de Lisboa and the Museum of Larinha in Portugal. And it was named after the finder of the holotype specimen, Dr. Ben Pabst. Now, a holotype is the specimen which is used when first describing the species. It's specifically a single physical example. Um, and one of the things that I think is interesting is that there are many fossil holotypes that are represented by single pieces of an animal, of which we don't really have, again, that much more information. So I talked about this earlier, too, the whole idea that if you only have a tiny piece of an animal, you don't really have much. So you give it a name and you put it in a box and you hope that someday someone will come along and say, hey, that looks familiar. <laughs> um, again, my other... Uh, thing that I talk about a lot, which is the idea that, you know, we could have people spend their entire careers just looking at stuff in museums already um, and actually going into storerooms and saying, wait, I've seen something that looks like that. Oh, that's what that is. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, 
Um, just another little, and there were a couple of others, but you know, there's only so many new dinosaurs you can talk about. Um, they're all kind of not, none of them is revolutionary. Um, the, the Tyrannosaurid is pretty cool because they found out that information about, you know, the face is really cool to find out that they've had, that they would have had this sort of sense, um, organ in their face is really amazing. Um, but I did want to finish up tonight by talking about, the sort of leaps and bounds we've made in figuring out exactly what dinosaurs would have looked like. So it's really hard when you only have bones to figure out what dinosaurs look like. And so if you look at some of the early depictions of dinosaurs um, from, say, the uh, Crystal Palace exhibition in London in the uh, late 19th century, you'll see very different from what we think they look like today. And in fact, some of the um, giant sort of sculptures that were made for that uh, exhibition are still, they still are out there. There's a, you can go to a park in England and still see them. Um, and they basically look like sort of blown up, kind of misshapen lizards. <laughs> they look like lizards where basically they've pulled in the, you know how lizards have splayed arms? Basically they pulled in the arms underneath them in a kind of awkward way and then that's what they looked like. Um, but of course we don't think they look like that anymore at all. And so one of the cool things we've been able to do is to discover the pigmentation of dinosaurs. And so there was a little bit of a controversy for a while. Um, and so people were looking at specimens and saying, hey, those look like melanosomes, which are pigment producing cells. And some other people said, mm, they look more like, you know, bacteria. But a second team came along and produced chemical evidence to suggest that this is indeed melanosomes that you're looking at. And so then they were able to actually figure out what, what color pigments they would have produced. And so they looked at this particular specimen um, of Anchironis huxleyi, which would have been a feathered crow-sized Jurassic dinosaur, um, and that would have lived in China around 160 million years ago. And so they found that it would have sported mostly gray and black plumage with long white feathers on its arms and legs and a reddish-brown crest on its head. Now, A. huxleyi is part of a group of, part of the group Paravians, which includes other early bird-like dinosaurs like Microraptor and the ubiquitous Archaeopteryx. And so then what they have since done is they've used laser-stimulated fluorescence on eight specimens of Anchironis, um, and so they've discovered patterns of skin texture. And this is really cool because what they found was that they look much like regular birds, drumstick-like legs, scaly feet, and a layer of skin called the patagium, which links the sections of the forearm. The, the, the way to describe that is, you know, the stretchy bit of skin you find in chicken wings. Um, and it's that stretchy bit of skin that is, cru is a crucial step in the development from proto-avian dinosaurs to true avians. The fact that we find this really neat wing in an older bird-like animal is really exciting, said research researcher Michael Pittman. Now, not all fossils have the correct min mineral content for this process, but it 
would be really cool for the ones that do. In our opinion, it should be in the top tray of any paleontologist toolbox because it is so easily expand because it can so easily expand the anatomical information available for a fossil without damaging it, he told National Geographic. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight. I will be back next week to talk about things that are probably not dinosaurs. Have a good night.